you have a copy of the Scriptures, let me invite you to turn to the Old Testament and to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. And our text today is going to be Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 10. Let me invite you as you're able. Once again, let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from the prophet Isaiah, the 11th chapter, beginning in the first verse, wherein the prophet Isaiah, uh, under the guidance of the Spirit, faithfully writes, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. May God bless today, once again, the reading and the hearing of his word. And let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we do stand uh, before thy word with fear and awe. Uh, we do give thee praise that you are a God who is not silent, but who speaks to us and who guides us by thy word. Give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen and free our minds. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Dear friends in Christ, we're taking a, a brief break today from the series that we've been undertaking for the last several uh, months through the book of Genesis, uh, where we're presently looking at the inspired account of Noah and the flood. In light of the fact that we stand today on the eve of what is undoubtedly the most popular and widely celebrated so-called holiday or holy day, in our nation, December 25, Christmas Day. It's sometimes a, a, a trouble for those of us who reform. We believe in the regular principle of worship, and we don't follow a Christian calendar, but, uh, but sometimes we acknowledge that this is a, a time when many people are thinking about 
the birth of Christ. And so I think it's, a, it's appropriate for us to take a pause from that series and to meditate a bit about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's appropriate today to consider the Word made flesh. There are, of course, many places within the New Testament to which we might have turned. We might have turned, for example, to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, which record for us our Lord's birth in Bethlehem. We might also have taken a more theological approach and looked at the prologue to the Gospel of John, which begins with the famous declaration, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We might even have turned to the letters of the Apostle Paul and looked at places like Galatians 4.4, which says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. We might have turned to any of those places. Instead, today, we are turning to the Old Testament book of Isaiah to ponder one of the great messianic prophecies of the Lord Jesus that is found in the Old Testament Scriptures. Earlier this year, some of you might remember that I did an overview message on the book of Isaiah. And I noted that many of the early Christians looked upon the book of Isaiah as a kind of fifth gospel that could be laid alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Indeed, before the Spirit inspired the gospel writers, the evangelists, the early Christians looked to, especially I think the book of Isaiah, to see and find there an outline for the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that overview message I described, or noted that Isaiah has been described as a kind of miniature Bible. Our Bible has 66 chapters, or 66 books, and so 39 books are in the Old Testament and 27 books are in the New Testament. And if you look at the book of Isaiah, it has 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters focus upon the righteousness and the judgment of God, ending in Isaiah 39 with an anticipation of the exile in Babylon, which Israel would undergo. And the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, beginning with Isaiah 40, uh, are a word of hope. And it begins with a prophecy of hope. In Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort my people, saith your God. And also in Isaiah 40 and verse 3, we have a prophecy of the, the great forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. As it says, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so Isaiah is kind of like a miniature Bible, an Old Testament, a New Testament within it. Probably the most striking thing about that New Testament so-called portion of the second half of Isaiah is the prophecy of the suffering of Christ. And I called Isaiah a fifth gospel. It provides for us, we might call it, a fifth passion narrative. As we have in the gospels, a description of Christ upon the cross. And of course, Isaiah wrote about this in Isaiah 53. We call it the suffering servant song. It begins in Isaiah 53:1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant 
and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness that and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. And so there's a passion narrative right there in that New Testament portion, we might call it, of the book of Isaiah. And that suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53, again uh, begins there in the second verse with describing this suffering Messiah as one who will grow up as a tender plant and as a, as a root out of a dry ground. And you will note that this great prophecy that we're going to look at today in Isaiah 11 is sort of the forerunner to that. It, it uses the similar type of language to describe Christ as, again, uh, that rod that comes out of the stem of Jesse, a branch growing out of his roots. Imagine, if you would, a landscape where a fire has rushed through and burned up the vegetation. Maybe you've been driving uh, uh, through the mountains uh, uh, in Afton, and you can sometimes see places where a fire comes through and it burns everything down. Or imagine going through some place where there's been a severe drought that's killed every living tree and plant. And then imagine out of the ashes, out of the dust, there springs up a tender plant. Isaiah says this is what the coming of the Messiah will be like in this sin-sick world. And again, what Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 53, anticipating the, the cross of Christ... He wrote about earlier in Isaiah 11, and that's the passage we want to look at today. We want to walk through the opening verses of Isaiah 11 and meditate on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as Isaiah foretold it. In these opening 10 verses of Isaiah 11, I want to suggest that we can see at least five prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. At least five prophecies. First of all, in verse 1, there is a prophecy that he shall come from the line of David. Secondly, in verses 2 and 3, there is a prophecy that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Thirdly, in verses 4 and 5, there is a prophecy that he shall be the standard of righteousness. Fourthly, in verses 6 through 9, there is a prophecy that he shall establish what I'll call here a peaceable kingdom. And then fifth and finally, in verse 10, there is a prophecy that the Gentiles shall seek him. And so let's walk through, if we can, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. And let's look at these five prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we begin with the first one laid out for us in verse 1. This verse begins... And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, 
and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This verse is a classic example of Hebrew poetry which depended upon parallelism. It's really two statements of the same reality. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And then that statement is simply repeated again. And there shall come forth a branch that shall grow out of his roots. That first part of the uh, of this verse, that first statement, a rod means a stem or a sprig. A branch, of course, is an outgrowth. There will be a rod, a sprig, uh, from the stem of Jesse. By stem, as Matthew Poole points out, we might imagine a stump. We might imagine a tree that has been cut down nearly to the ground. Some years back, uh, when we lived in outside of Warsaw, Virginia, in a parsonage, we had a crepe myrtle tree in our front yard. I didn't like it, and uh, I wanted to cut it down, and I cut it down, and if you've ever cut those things down, I like with lots of pruning, when you cut it back, it grows forth. And uh, I just couldn't get rid of that thing. I would try to cut it down, and it would burst forth. And so we're to imagine a stump here. And out of it, there comes a rod, a little sprig. And uh, Isaiah says that this rod will come out of the stem or the stump of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Jesse was, of course... Uh, That man mentioned in the Old Testament who was from the town of Bethlehem. And he was the father of King David, the greatest king from Israel's past. That man after God's own heart, described in 2 Samuel 23.1 as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Indeed, he penned 74 of the psalms, at least in the 150 psalms we have in our Psalter. You'll remember that Saul had been the first king of Israel but that he had been a political and spiritual failure. The Lord had therefore prompted his prophet Samuel to go out and to seek a new king to replace Saul, leading the prophet Samuel to the household of a man from the tribe of Judah, whose name was Jesse of Bethlehem. And when Samuel went there, the oldest of Jesse's uh, sons came forward. He was a handsome man. He looked like he came out of central casting to be a king over Israel. And Samuel thought within his heart, we're told in 1 Samuel 16, 6, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But then we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that the Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Seven of Jesse's sons passed before the prophet Samuel, but the Lord chose none of them. Finally, Samuel asked, Are there here all of your children? And Jesse said, There is yet one more, the youngest who is out keeping the sheep. And then in 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, it says, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So this David, the least of Jesse's sons, became the great king. And as he ruled in his kingdom, in the midst of his rule, 
the prophet Nathan came to him with a prophecy of one even greater who would come from the seed of David. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and following, it says that Nathan said this, uh, brought this message to David from the Lord. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Some might think he was talking about Solomon, who would build the temple. But Solomon would not have a throne and a kingdom that would last forever. Surely, no doubt, people pondered, what was this prophecy that Nathan had brought? And even in the days of the prophet Isaiah, if you go back and read as we often find in the beginning of the prophets, uh, he gives us the background of who were the kings who were ruling in Judah during the time of his ministry. The last one listed there in Isaiah 1.1 is King Hezekiah. These kings were descended from David. They were kings ruling over the nation of Judah. In fact, uh, Isaiah would serve as a spiritual advisor to King Hezekiah. He would be there when the Assyrians threatened to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah as they had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. But the Lord would save Judah from that threat. But Isaiah would prophesy of the time when Judah too would fall. Not to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians. There would come a time when it would seem like the line of David, like a proud, mighty oak, would be cut down to the ground. And it would seem to the skeptics that the promise of God given through Nathan to David had failed. David's line would be like a stump that had been cut down to the ground. But, Isaiah said, there will be a rod that will be silently growing from the ruins, from the dust and the ashes of Judah. There would burst forth the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, when we turn over to the New Testament, the very first page of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew the very first words we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 are this. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It will proceed to tell us that the Lord Jesus came from the line of David and that he was born in Bethlehem. This is affirmed by Luke, which describes how upon the decree of Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, everyone went unto his own city. And it tells us in Luke 2, verse 4, that Joseph also went up unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He went up also, Luke says, with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And while in Bethlehem, it says in Luke 2, 6, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. During his earthly ministry, the blind would cry out to him, have mercy on us, O Lord, Thou Son of David. The Apostle Paul would likewise affirm in Romans 1, verse 3, that he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. A rod shall come forth 
out of the stem of Jesse. This affirms that when the Lord Jesus would come, when the Word would be made flesh, He would come to the earth as a true man. This is our orthodox confession of Christ, that He is one person with two natures, true God and true man. And also that He would come again from that line of David. He was the one that Nathan had spoken about. He was the one who would establish a kingdom that would never fail. Isaiah was not the only prophet to see this. For the last three months, we've been reciting together at the beginning of our worship services a prophecy that runs along the same tracks from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Second of five prophecies in verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 11 is the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We look at verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This tells us that the Messiah who will come from the stem of Jesse will be what we could call a Spirit-filled man and a Spirit-directed man. Oh please, because we're Reformed or just simply biblical in our theology, Let's not think that we don't believe in the Holy Spirit of God. We're charismatics in that sense. We believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. And we believe the Lord Jesus was a Spirit-filled and Spirit-directed man as, as none other. His life, His entire life, was in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit. Think about it, as we stumble along in this life, how many times do we wish that our lives would be in line with the Holy Spirit? And it is not. But the Lord Jesus Christ lived a life that was perfectly in harmony with the Holy Spirit. The Gospels tell us that He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin by the Holy Spirit. The Gospels also tell us that when He was baptized, as Luke puts it in Luke 3.22, the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon Him. Thank you, brother. There is focus given by Isaiah to at least three aspects of the Spirit's work in and through the life of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 2. The first aspect. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Christ is the standard for wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the skillful living of one's life so that God receives, God the Father receives the most glory and man receives the most blessing. And so the spirit of wisdom and understanding rested upon Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the Greeks thought that the preaching of Christ crucified was foolishness. But Paul says to those who are called by this gospel, it is the power of God, the wisdom of God. Second of three aspects of the spirit resting upon him, it says there was resting upon him In verse 2, the spirit of counsel and might. This tells us that Christ always perfectly conducted Himself according to the counsel of the Father. In the garden, before He was arrested and was brought to trial and then to be crucified, He prayed, 
Not that His will be done, but that God's will, God the Father's will be done. Not my will be done, but Thine be done. And He showed His might and power, as Paul will put it in Philippians 2, by making Himself of no reputation, taking upon Himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and found in fashion as a man, humbling Himself and being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Third aspect of the Spirit-led, Spirit-filled life of Christ, He would have resting upon Him as it's put here by Isaiah, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. With respect to His divine nature, Christ shared in the omniscience of God. In John 2.25, the Apostle says that Christ needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. Christ, as the God-man, was also filled with fear or reverence or awe for the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. At no point in His life did Christ ever approach the holiness of God with any form of levity or frivolity. With anything less than utmost reverence and awe. Consider, if you will, with me, to our shame, how many times we approach a holy God with frivolity, with levity. The Lord Jesus never did that. He was filled with a perfect fear of the Lord, a perfect understanding of the Lord. Isaiah continues by saying, in verse 3, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And again, this emphasizes his perfect comprehension of being in awe of the Lord. And then Isaiah adds in verse 3, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. This means that with this perfect knowledge and with this perfect fear of the Lord, he did not judge persons or circumstances as ordinary men do. This tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ was a man in whom there was no prejudice. Consider that. We have prejudices. We make judgments. We make presumptions about people about nations, about situations and circumstances, but the Lord Jesus Christ never did that. He did not judge by outward appearance, but He looked upon the heart. He showed no partiality among men. He did not listen to gossip or rumor or hearsay. He would never have been hoodwinked by fake news or by conspiracy theories. He had perfect knowledge, perfect comprehension of all things and a fear of the Lord. His evaluations of men and circumstances was always perfect and always perfectly just. How far do we come short of that? Thirdly, third of five prophecies, if you look at verses 4 and 5, it tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be the standard of righteousness, the standard of of righteousness. And so the prophet Isaiah begins in verse 4, but with righteousness shall he judge 
the poor, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. At the time of the prophets, the land of Israel was populated with many unjust judges. The prophet Amos would denounce the wicked judges in his day in Amos 2.6 as those who sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. But Isaiah prophesies that there will come a day and there will be that rod out of the stem of Jesse and he will come as a judge and he will judge justly for the poor and the weak of the earth. Later in the book of Isaiah, if you look over in Isaiah 61 and verse 1, he gives this prophecy of the Lord Jesus. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And you might remember in Luke 4 that when Christ went into His hometown synagogue in Nazareth, this was the very passage of Scripture to which He turned. And He said, This is fulfilled now in your hearing. And so he comes as the Messiah, as a perfect judge. It also says in verse 4, the second half of verse 4, And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. He adds here again this, that he will judge with, with equity uh, for the meek of the earth. Actually, let me, let me go back a little bit to verse 4. It says he will reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Uh, we might think of Christ's teaching in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 5, when He said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then, again, there follows this uh, almost apocalyptic vision. Again, this is He's describing the Messiah as a man, but He's as a, as a man uh, in sort of symbolic spiritual imagery as which doesn't correspond to ordinary men. It says of Him, He shall smite the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall slay the wicked. <coughs> Imagine a person and coming out of his mouth there is a rod that strikes the earth with justice. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, the very first chapter, the Apostle John will be moved by the Holy Spirit to describe the risen Lord Jesus in a similar fashion, saying in Revelation 1.16, And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. This tells us that the words of Christ shall be like a dread and sober weapon. They will be an instrument of judgment and evaluation. Has anybody ever experienced the Word of God as being like that? As you've read it, as you've heard it preached, that it comes like a rod out of the mouth of God and strikes the earth with justice and evaluates us. And also this Word that is there uh, to, to judge also destroys those who are in opposition to God. With the breath of His lips shall He slay the wicked. The Apostle Paul will later write in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, of the wicked whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorious for the saints, His second coming, but it will be a day of dread and condemnation for the wicked. In verse 5, then, we have two more kind of parallel statements following Hebrew poetry. As in verse 5, the first of those statements is this, and righteousness shall be the girdle of His loins. This tells us that 
this, this rod on the stem of Jesse, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He will be the embodiment of righteousness. He will be the embodiment, embodiment of justice. He will wear it like a belt around His waist. And then the second parallel statement that sort of repeats, emphasizes the same thing. It says, and faithfulness, the girdle of His reins. Faithfulness will be the girdle of His reins. The word reins is one of those old authorized version words. Great word that shouldn't be abandoned. Uh, it's parallel to, word, to the word loins. It literally refers to the area around the waist, particularly in the lower back where the kidneys were. And for the ancient Hebrews, they used this part of the body to describe the, the, the inmost moral composition of a man. Faithfulness will be his belt. Faithfulness will be girt about his reins. Faithfulness to the Father will be at the core of his being. Let me ask again. How many times in our lives have we, have we been filled with remorse because we were not as faithful as we know we ought to have been? How many things have we overlooked? How many things have we not done? How many times have we sinned by acts of omission, by acts of commission? We've not been faithful, but there is one, Isaiah says, who wears faithfulness around his reins. Righteousness is his belt. He is our righteous Savior, our righteous Messiah. And what we're being told here in, in the end is that our salvation is not going to depend in the end on our righteousness or upon our faithfulness. But on what does our salvation depend? It will depend upon the righteousness and the faithfulness of Christ. And He wears it perfectly about His waist. I was talking the devotional Wednesday night about the old um, uh, evangelism explosion questions. And one of those questions was, you know, uh, do you know if you would go to heaven and if God met you at, at, at the entrance to heaven and he asked you, why should, why should you be here? Well, how would you respond? And we talked about how D. James Kennedy wrote that and used that as a little test for how people understood the gospel because if if somebody says, well, I ought to go, I ought to be in heaven because I'm a good person, because I go to church, because I read the Bible every day, all those answers would fail because every true, true Christian is going to answer what? As to why? Because of the righteousness of Christ. Because I know someone who wears righteousness and faithfulness about his waist, about his reins. That's why. I find any acceptance with God. It's through Christ, through His righteousness and not my own. Not that He doesn't change me and, and begin to, to make me into the likeness of Christ. Fourth, fourth prophecy about Christ. Verses 6-9. through nine. He shall establish what I've called here a peaceable kingdom. And again, this is another, like the sort of image of the rod coming out of his mouth and the breath of his lips slaying the wicked. This is another sort of biblical, metaphorical, spiritual picture. And it says in verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. In the early 19th century, there was a Quaker artist 
named Edward Hicks, who created several paintings based on this passage. And the various uh, versions of this are called the Peaceable Kingdom. One of them hangs in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. In the foreground of Hicks' painting, he has a wolf next to a lamb, a leopard with a goat, a calf with a lion, and a cow with a bear. And in the midst of all these animals, Hicks drew a young child. That's in the foreground. In the background, he, in miniature, he drew this little picture of a group of Quaker men meeting with a group of Native Americans, with Indians. And the title of it was The Peaceable Kingdom. Hicks was trying to capture two themes that are present in this passage. The first theme is eschatological. It's about last things. Greek word eschaton. The last things. It's a prophecy of what will come about at the end of the ages. You see, the rod from the stem of Jesse is going to come. The word is going to be made flesh and dwell among us. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be raised. He's going to ascend and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And at the time of the Father's choosing, He's going to come in power and glory. And He's going to establish His kingdom. And Isaiah saw that, that kingdom. It will be a kingdom of peace. There will be a cessation of hostilities. Part of what is being depicted here in Isaiah's words are the restoration of fallen Eden. Before Genesis 3, before the fall, there was no death. Before the fall, there was no nature, red in tooth and claw. Notice in verse 7 of Isaiah 11, it says, And the cow and the bear shall feed. And what this tells us is there will be a return to that time described in Genesis 2, verses 29 and 30, which says that before the fall, God gave all the beasts of the earth every green herb for meat. What he's saying is that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he establishes his kingdom, there will be a rolling back of the fall. A rolling back of the fall. There will be restoration. All things will be made new. This, this theme continues. If you look at verse, verse 8, it says, And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. How many of you parents, when it comes to be summer, do you want to say, here's a good snake hole. Let's get the kids here to gather around. We got a, we got a den of, of cobras, cockatrices. Come on, toddlers. Let's have a play date right here by the hole of the asp. Uh, well, why is Isaiah saying this? Well, he's again picturing the time of the coming of Christ, second coming of Christ, when his kingdom comes. And why, why this language of serpents? Well, remember Genesis 3. What happened? It was a serpent who seduced the first man and the first woman to trespass against the command of God. And what Isaiah is seeing with the help of the Spirit is a time when God will rule and reign and be all in all and there will be no more evil. There will be no more sin. There will be no disobedience against the Lord. And so he's seeing that, that great time when God will be all in all. And how will this be brought about? In verse 6, and a little child shall lead them. This is a prophecy of the nativity of our Lord. 
He will come as a little child who gives responsibilities to little children. We don't. But a great responsibility was given to the Lord Jesus Christ when He came as a babe in the womb, was born. And as Luke puts in Luke 2.52, He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He had no comeliness that we should look upon Him. He came like a, a rod out of a stump. And yet He would bring about this peaceable kingdom in due time. We're told in verse 9, in this peaceable kingdom they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. There will be no hurt, no destruction. This recalls Revelation 21.4, John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And then going back to Isaiah 11 verse 9, It says in the second half of that verse, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. The prophet Habakkuk picked up this same sentiment in Habakkuk 2.14. There will come a day in this kingdom when the knowledge of God will cover the world like the waters cover the seas. Think of all the things we don't know about the Lord. Think of all the things we don't understand about His doings. We will never know everything. If we did, we would be God and we're not. But there is coming a time when we will know so much more than we know now. And everything we learn will be a cause for praise and worship and glorying in Him. Everything that's happened to us, everything we understand, everything that before had flummoxed us and distressed us, when we come to know, we will praise Him. The knowledge of the Lord will cover as the water covers the seas, that kingdom. There's a second theme. There's an eschatological theme in this. There's also, I think, a this-worldly theme. And Hicks, our Quaker friend, captured that when he put that peaceable kingdom in the foreground, but he put that meeting between the Quakers and the Indians in the background. Christ came that we might have eternal life, but He also came that we might begin enjoying that eternal life now as he said in John 10.10 I am come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly and this means that the peaceable kingdom begins right now look at the Sermon on the Mount don't become unjustly angry with someone for if you do that you committed murder don't look upon a woman lustfully if you do that you've committed adultery love your enemies Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. As Paul will put it in Romans 12, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's the kingdom beginning now and then brought to its fullness and completion when Christ comes in glory. The fifth prophecy here in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10, is the last verse, down the last verse. And I've summarized it as the Gentiles shall seek him. Finally, in this verse, we see what we could call the universal extent of the Messiah's mission. He comes not just to redeem the seed of Abraham through the line of David, but also the seed of all mankind. 
That's why Luke in his genealogy of our Lord draws the line all the way back to Adam. The Bible does not teach universalism. The idea that you can be saved, everyone will be saved regardless of their response to Christ. That's unbiblical. But it does teach that the kingdom has a universal scope. That it will draw in and encompass men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Isaiah begins by saying in verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. There will be in that day uh, a flag, a sign, a standard, an emblem around which men of all nations can rally. The idea here is that the stump, which was once cut so low, shall grow again and be even loftier and greater than that which preceded it, and it will serve as a banner under which men of all nations, tribes, and tongues may gather. And so he adds in verse 10, to it shall the Gentiles seek. To it shall the nations seek. This is what the Apostle Paul called the great mystery in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians 3.6 he said, What is that mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel. It was there from the beginning in the angel of the Lord's announcement to the shepherds in Luke 2, verses 10 and following, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to some people, to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And notice the last statement of Isaiah's in Isaiah 11 and verse 10. And His rest shall be glorious. And His rest shall be glorious. If you haven't yet found a phrase you might choose to meditate upon throughout the remainder of this day, it might be that one. And His rest shall be glorious. There is coming a day of glorious rest. Now we are the church militant on earth. But there is coming a day of rest and there is coming a day of glorious rest. The victory has been achieved by Christ on the cross. The victory has been achieved and the tomb has been left empty. And there is coming a day of glorious rest. So friends, we have worked through the passage. Let us then consider this prophecy from Isaiah about the Messiah. First, Christ shall come as a rod from the stem of Jesse. It's happened friends. Christ is born. Christ came. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and He accomplished perfectly the task for which He was sent. Second, the Spirit of the Lord was and is upon Him. He was in perfect harmony with the Spirit so that every time we are in incongruity with the Spirit, we can look to Him knowing that He has lived a perfect life 
And if we are in Him, if our lives are hid in His, that perfect life is ours by grace. Third, He is our righteousness and our faithfulness. Our salvation doesn't depend on us. It's not conditioned on that. All the glory goes to Him. He is our righteousness. Now that should change the way you live and who you are. But He is our righteousness. He is our faithfulness. Fourth, He is bringing about a peaceable kingdom that begins now and will be perfectly completed when He returns in power and glory. And then fifth and finally, He came for all kinds of men, Jews and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, who will, by God's grace, seek Him. To it shall the Gentiles seek. Are you seeking Christ by God's grace? Are you seeking Christ? You will be found by those who seek Him. Amen? Amen. Let me you stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give Thee thanks today for this opportunity to come together and to read the Scriptures. Perhaps a a passage familiar to many. Maybe some are not familiar with this passage. Oh God, uh, whatever our state of mind and heart today, use, oh God, thy word uh, to penetrate uh, any indifference that we have to Christ and awaken us to him and to his work. We ask this in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.